Welcome to the Health Business Growth Show, where we take you behind the scenes of the top health businesses to learn how they built their success. Remember, success leaves clues, and we're going to be sharing those with you. I'm your host, JJ Bergen, Inc. 5000 founder of the Mindshare Collaborative, along with members of our Mindshare Mentor team. And each week, we are joined by some of the most brilliant, innovative, and okay, slightly unhinged health business experts you're going to ever meet. These folks have built empires from scratch, navigated the choppy waters of entrepreneurship, and will be sharing both their struggles and their successes on the journey of creating a thriving health business. So if you're ready to take your business to the next level by learning from the best, you are in the right place. In each episode of the Health Business Growth Show, we'll tackle real-world, relevant topics to help you build your audience and scale your income. From marketing to mindset, from hiring to firing, and everything in between. We'll share our own stories of success and failure, interview some of the most amazing guests in the health business world, and we promise to never take ourselves too seriously. Because let's be honest, building your health business can be a bit challenging at times. Success takes resilience, creativity, courage, and a willingness to step outside of your comfort zone. And we are here to help you navigate through all of it. Find the humor in the chaos and build a health business that's truly worth it. So let's get this party started. We are so glad you are here. I think quite often we look at someone and we see all of their successes and we figure, oh, oh, it must have been easy for them, right? Or they've got that success because they're they're so-and-so or they're tall or they went to that school or whatever the heck it is. And the reality is I've had the opportunity to talk to so many amazingly successful people. I've seen that they've all had in common is some what I call epic fails, like, but they don't see them that way. They see them as research and development. They see them as necessary learning. In fact, when I talk about what it's like to be an entrepreneur, because if you are a health practitioner, guess what you are? You're really, unless you're working in a system, you're an entrepreneur, right? And really what you want to think of is how do I change my practice into a business? Because it has to be a business in order to be profitable, create value. And then really, how do I take that business and move it into an empire and really touch the lives I want to touch? You know, I like to say success leaves clues. So I really love it when I can bring someone on the show where I can take you through their journey that you've probably never heard before. And boy, that's definitely the case with Dr. Jeffrey Bland. You know him from the Institute for Functional Medicine and for Metagenics and for Personalized Lifestyle Institute and for Big Bold Health and for whole movement of immunorejuvenation, but it hasn't always been that way. And his his past to get to where he is now was quite a jagged road. And it's fascinating stuff. And you'll see that along the way that the failures are what took him to the next level, that all of this research and development led him to where he was, that all along the way, he was looking ahead He wasn't copying, he was looking ahead, he was testing different models, and he was collaborating. All these these cultural codes that we love so much in Mindshare, he is the 
epitome of, which is why at the 2023 Mindshare Leadership Summit, our 10th anniversary summit, we are giving Dr. Jeff Bland the Pinnacle Award for Lifetime Achievement because he deserves it a thousandfold over for all that he has done for all of us to really give us a place to be, to help us, to give us a career. He's opened up all of these doors with what he's done. So I'm super excited to share this interview with you, as you can tell. We will put all of the information at mindsharecollaborative.com forward slash Dr. Bland, D-R-B-L-A-N-D, and uh, links to his books, links to his podcast, links to the summit so you can come cheer him on when he gets the award and hang out with him. And links, of course, to PLMI and Big Bold Health and all the stuff that he's got his fingers into. In fact, it was fun because he joined our Mindshare Mastermind and we helped with the launch of Big Bold Health. So I've got a big soft spot for all of that and for Dr. Jeff Bland, and I will be right back with him. So stay with us. Do you know what the most successful subject line of all time is? You are not alone. One of the most common statements I hear when people attend our events is, oh my gosh, I found my people. I don't feel alone anymore. In fact, Mindshare started because I was at a marketing event. And when I asked one of the experts the best way to build my business, he said, do it through collaboration. The only challenge was that I was going to these events and there were very few health professionals or health business owners in the room. So I started inviting my peers to come to the events and join me for lunch where we could share best practices and get to know each other. Well, we quickly outgrew those meeting rooms and I decided we should hold our own event, which has become our annual gathering, now in its 10th year, the Mindshare Leadership Summit. This unique event is a combination of facilitated networking that even the biggest introvert enjoys so that you'll leave the event with at least 10 great relationships to help expand your impact. There's strategic training by your peers to share what's working right now in their health businesses so that you can increase your income and incredible keynotes by notables including Dr. Joe Dispenza, Marie Forleo, Lisa Nichols, and Brendan Burchard to help you expand your vision. We also have our Future of Health Talk competition where you will help select the winner or you can even compete yourself to get featured in the media and top podcasts. And because in my next life, I really wanna be a party planner, we include a world-class costume party and a celebratory gala featuring our Impact Awards where we acknowledge the incredible achievements of our members. This year's event is October 5th through 8th at the spectacular JW Marriott Camelback Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona. Attendance is by application only, so to learn more and apply, go to MindshareSummit.com. Now, this is our 10th anniversary year, so the celebration is going to be off the hook. You do not want to miss it. So again, MindshareSummit.com. See you there. Dr. Jeffrey Bland, welcome to the Health Business Growth Show. I'm so excited to have you here with me. Oh, JJ, this is uh, for me some I've been looking forward to. Every time that we have the chance to kind of share some ideas, it uh, creates all sorts of new things for me. Oh, boy. I don't know if the world can handle more new things from you. <laughs> How many industries and things will Jeff create in his lifetime? And that brings me up really to the subject of today because so many people out there, you've, you've impacted so many people. You've created careers, really, for so many people. I think people see you as a scientist and where I really want people to see you is 
to step behind that and go, all right, what did it take to create business after business after business to create industries? And, you know, how does someone have to think? What do they have to be willing to do? You know, what are the failures you've had to take? That's, I want to dig into all of this and really help people see the entrepreneur, the innovator behind the scientist that has really, you know, gosh, created so much opportunity for so many people out in the world. So is that cool with you? Wow, this will be a fun journey. So I'm ready to take the step. Let's do it. I know. I feel like we need probably, you know, a couple of days, like we need to do a whole documentary on it, but this will be a good start. And I know you're at the Mindshare Leadership Summit this year. You are getting the Pinnacle Lifetime Achievement Award, which is long overdue. Um, and we like to give that to someone not only who's achieved a lot, but also who's done that by helping so many other people achieve their dreams. And you've done that more than anybody I know. That's a big, big huge uh, truth. It's a big, huge truth. truth. I mean, I, I, just, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that's that's an honor that um, coming from you, I, I take with great, great privilege. So thank you. Was it Zig Ziglar, I think, that said, if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get what you want? Yeah. And I think that's exactly true. That's a good way to lead a life. No question. Yeah. When you look at how you started... I don't think anyone would have said, oh, okay, here's a, here's a guy, he's getting his degrees, his, I think your PhD was in chemistry, you know, and I bet he's going to go off and create all of these businesses and, you know, <laughs> change, change the world. How did you go from starting out, and I think you were biology and chemistry and biochemistry, and then as a professor, like, how did you make, how did you make a shift from being a scientist and academician over to the business side of things? That's a really interesting question I've asked myself, actually, many, many times. And I had an, an experience this last week that kind of rekindled that questioning of myself because I was invited to be one of the presenters at the Milken Global Health Conference uh, down at Wilshire at the Hilton Hotel there, which was really, for me, kind of a back-to-the-future experience because I recognized when I made contact with Michael Milken that he and I, as junior high students, were in the same class. Uh, actually, he was, a, he was a semester behind me, and we were both in student government in the San Fernando Valley at Birmingham High School. I got thinking about Michael Milken that I, I remembered as a 13-year-old in the ninth grade, and he was, he was in the eighth grade. And where he was going and where I was going back in our junior high school years. And how did that translate into the Michael Milken that's the global leader in business today and in philanthropy and has really created a whole different sense of capital markets globally versus Jeff Bland, who then took our shared common experiences, junior high school students, and and ultimately went on into kind of the, the medical health and nutrition side to feel kind of where we had been trained was a little bit constraining and therefore we wanted to have a, a bigger playing field and to put the goalposts farther out. I don't know exactly what those characteristics are that creates that motivation that a person has because when I think of Milken's background, his father and my father were very similar uh, coming out of World War II as service people trying to create a new beginning for their family. I'm, 
my parents relocated. My mother's a Hollywood girl, met my father during World War II as an Illinois guy, as a flyer in the Air Force, and, and he came out for training in California. They had a, a blind date, uh, and, and that started their relationship. And Milken's uh, father was an attorney from the East Coast, a young guy, uh, again on a VA bill after the war, and moved his family to LA. And so that kind of origin of fathers and mothers that then had this opportunity post-World War II to recognize that the field of dreams could be theirs, and then how do you raise your children to take advantage of that is a kind of a common theme, I think, to a lot of people that were in my generation. I was born in 46, the same as Michael Milken. How that then translated into the age of where we are today and how I then kind of navigated because my principle was always to find something that I never thought I was going to work, that I didn't ever have a job. What my principle was to have such passion in what I was doing uh, that it would be something that I would do for free. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's just kind of driven me all the years to constantly be in search of where the next step might be, what the next boundary might be, what the next opportunity for growth in my understanding of, of life and its complexity. And when I talked to Milken, that was similar to what drove him as well, just in a different direction. I do believe, though, and you know, I think a lot of people coming back from the war, looking at what they needed to do to take care of their families, but there's another level to it because, and it's that question, are entrepreneurs made or are they born that way? And I just think there's a, a genetic piece of it of an entrepreneur and their behavior and their personality that's just who they are. Just your idea, because it's so different than the way most people think, oh, I'm just going to create things that I love so that I don't ever have to feel like I'm working. Yeah, It's very different than people going, I'll work so that I can pay for the things I love to do. I think that that's a really important point that you're raising because, first of all, I as I've grown up to recognize that I'm an entrepreneur. And I actually, uh, the first time I was called that was by Doug Green, who was the founder of Natural Foods Expos and New Hope Communications, and really kind of, I think, was instrumental in building the natural foods industry. And he's a very understated guy, but if you really trace the people like John Mackey and others that are the seminal people that built the business of natural foods, and they'll all say that Doug Green was the quintessential entrepreneur that made that all happen. And Doug was the first guy this is way back when he asked me if I would run the educational parts of the Natural Foods Expo when it first started 25, 30 years ago. And he came to me after a couple of years, I was a professor at the time, and he said, so Jeff, you know, you're an entrepreneur. And I thought it was a French swear word. I thought he was you know, <laughs> swearing at me, but I did come to recognize that actually I, I did have those characteristics of entrepreneurism, which is some degree of mental illness, because entrepreneurs have to be able to ride over the valleys of dysfunction that are inevitable in building something from scratch. I think my background as a scientist somewhat helped me because, as you know, when you're doing new science, most of your experiments are unsuccessful. And you have to ride on the ones that are successful to pull you to the next level. And if you get bogged down with failures because you did some experiment and you were up late at night coming into the lab and doing this and that, and you were optimistic about the results and then something happened that you didn't get results, you can either throw it in 
and be despondent, or you can say, well, that was a learning curve. I'm ready for the next opportunity. And I think that background I had as a scientist doing experiments kind of helped me to be um, able to see over the light of the depths of failures. <laughs> well, I mean, think of the most successful people that we know. And I have always noticed that the most successful people I know are the people who I call it the fail forward fast and innovate. But I don't know a successful person who hasn't had some amazing failures. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just not possible. And it's interesting that you said that because it's true. Like, you know, when you're working in a lab and you're doing research, most of it's not going to be what you wanted it to be. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot to be gained from that. Well, I, I think you just actually uh, hit on for me what, what was probably the seminal event that set me free to be willing to say I was an entrepreneur. And that that is a, I, I don't ever think I've told this story. So I was doing my thing. I started off at, as a professor and got involved because of one of my students, my actually my first student, wanted to work on vitamin E. I didn't know anything about vitamin E at all, but he was a very convincing kind of ambitious student who actually went on later to, now he's the head of the Department of Internal Medicine at John Hopkins. But Back then, he was just an undergraduate student wanting to do some research. So we started on the Spider-Man E project, which actually turned out to um, be quite successful. We got many papers published and ended up in the media spotlight because vitamin E in the 70s was kind of big, kind of on the consumer radar. So I got pulled into speaking in, in different media and, and so forth. And that introduced me then into the medical world. So I got the uh, opportunity to present this esoteric vitamin E work to medical groups. That kind of started me down the path in the mid-70s to presenting into, into health practitioners. What happened as a consequence of that is as I rolled forward and, and uh, ultimately then took over the leadership of the Northwest Academy of Preventive Medicine, and we had Linus Pauling as one of our keynote speakers. And Pauling and I became communicators about work and nutrition. That then allowed me to host him on a couple of meetings at the University of Washington, where he introduced me into you know a different level of, of people than probably I had been working with uh, in my own small little research projects. Ultimately, then that, that resulted in me getting an opportunity to do consulting for a nutrition series of stores, actually, in the Pacific Northwest that had nutrition centers in their stores. This this was fairly new in the 70s. And so I was doing some consulting for them. And one night they asked me if I would speak at one of their big stores, some kind of a gala event. And in the audience were these three young people. They came up to me afterwards. Uh, and they introduced themselves as people that were involved with a company they just started called Media Marketing. And they were doing television advertorials. This was a brand new medium. I Now we call infomercials. And would I be willing to do one on diet and be their expert? Well, I knew nothing about this at all, but I, I said, well, that'd be a way to get my, some of my message about, about eating and living and so forth. I had a, a variety of research students that we could do some clinical studies to develop a program, which was called well, I don't even need to get into the name. Let's just say it became a program that went on TV, and it turned out because it was a new medium, it was called The Healthy Diet, that it became very, very successful. They were buying a, a million dollars of media a week. We became the number one watched TV show because it was late night TV, and this was a new medium, uh, and we could buy all sorts of 
TV very inexpensive back in those days. So we were very visible and there's nowhere I could go that I wasn't recognized back then. This was 77, 78. Ultimately, that led us into becoming quite a substantial company. And I got pulled along for the ride because we were providing uh, the information that was in the show and I was a celebrity in the show. So that kind of introduced me into this world of nutritional business in a way that I was not familiar with and probably would have never been in the absence. So then from there, it was kind of a roll forward because what happened, and, and this is now, I, I, this is the buildup to the uh, conclusion, which is what happens when you go from success to failure. So as a consequence of them owning the business and running the business and me being the, the tang along, basically, they built a 300,000 customers over a year and a half, two year period. They then called me one Friday and said, hey, we'd like to have you come in for a meeting on Saturday to, uh, to our offices, which was kind of an unusual thing for the weekend because these people generally didn't work on the weekend. So yeah, I, I went down there and uh, to make a long story short, what happened was they rolled out these spreadsheets, which basically showed that um, they were going to go bankrupt. And they had overspent, they'd done all sorts of things that Nuvarish might do and spending way over their head thinking that this was going to last forever. And so they were in deep debt. They'd bought properties and this and that and so forth. So I had the chance to step away because I didn't own anything of the company at that point. But I went back and I had a, a discussion with, with my wife, Susan, about this. And Susan said, so Jeff, you know, this is a kind of one of those seminal moments in your life because no one knows about media marketing. They don't know about Molin Cutler, the telemarketing company. They only know about you because you're the face on this show. And if this thing goes south and they have bad relationships somehow with a regulatory agency or with returns that they've guaranteed or anything happens that would paint a bad picture you're going to be the person that will ultimately be recognized as the as the bad person just by association because you're you've been on the show they don't know the other people at all so we made the decision to um, basically take on responsibility for this bankrupt company that now had a couple hundred employees and that was one of the great moments of <laughs> transition of my life because it uh, forced me to learn about business very rapidly to downsize, uh, you know, had to let go virtually. I think we finally ended up with 30 employees out of 170 or something. We had all sorts of things that they were interdictions from regulators because they had not done their business properly. So it took about a year and a half to um, come out of that. That was a year and a half of no sleep, but it taught me all sorts of lessons about how to manage both success and failure and to plan for the unexpected. And ultimately, I, I credit that with being probably why I became part moving away from just being a straight academic into this hybrid science business person. You know, it's interesting though, for most people, this would have sent them straight back into academics, <laughs> right? What would have happened if Susan hadn't have said that? That was so astute. Yeah, I think it really was, uh, JJ, because I know you know this and you communicate this to your group very, very well, that at the end of the day, the most important thing that you own is your identity. Everything else is kind of transitory. How the world perceives you and who you are and how you feel about yourself is ultimately the center point of everything else. And if you allow that to be compromised, 
for utilitarian kind of reasons, you may ultimately give away the most valuable asset that you have. Everyone comes up to those points in their life as you grow and get more visible and have greater success. Those questions always come up. I can tell you now I've counseled multiple individuals who are at career breaks in their growth in which they've been, you know, had some high net worth person come in and say, I will do all these things for you. You'll be instantly successful and famous and rich. And all you have to do is follow my lead. And then I've asked them, what's their return on losing your identity and losing your autonomy? Is it worth it? In the majority of those cases, those people made decisions to hang in there and to maintain their control of themselves, and it proved to be very, very successful over time. They've grown up to be independently successful without having somebody else pulling the strings. So important. It is, I think, on that journey, there are times along the journey where you just get tired, and someone senses it and goes, hey, and it sounds really good, and you just have to keep the long game in right in your eyesight. You always have to have that vision there because it's really easy to decide to take that and I never see it work. And it's always that if it sounds too good to be true. I think for most entrepreneurs too, giving up control, giving up freedom, which is I would think for majority of entrepreneurs our number one value is devastating and it's never worth it in the long run. And it's like that money that you make in the short term is pales as to what you could create if you're able to do it the way you want to do it. So that is a huge, important point. You took that company, and then what happened with that company and what happened next? <laughs> so that uh, ultimately distilled itself down to a core group of people that were willing to hang with me, and they were very talented, i say, um, hang with me in the reincarnation of what we were trying to do to uh, ultimately, we weren't trying to sell products. That wasn't the reason that we started the perfect diet or the healthy diet. We were trying to really get people to engage in changes in their behavior to improve their health. So the next thing we did uh, with this talented group of people that hung with me was to decide that we needed to form a bricks and mortar early stage company to be engaged in uh, healthy aging. And this was 1980. And we formed a relationship with a gentleman from Corona Del Mar, California, Phil Hochschild, who had developed a very interesting instrument on an early stage Mac computer. So this was, you know, if you think of the 80s, this was pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And we were able to, with that device called the H-Scan, H for his name, Hochschild, uh, we were able to analyze 18 different parameters of functional age that was all tracked against the metropolitan insurance outcome of 3,600 people uh, so we could see how their biological function connected to their chronological age. So we were early adopters, I would say very early because this is the um, 80s, the early middle 80s. Uh, we were able to set up a clinic which we called the Body Total Center, that then did this evaluation and then intervened with lifestyle intervention to measure their improved performance on these 18 different parameters related to biological aging. We got uh, on 48 Hours TV, local Seattle TV did quite a few episodes with us, and we became quite successful with that that little clinic, or series, actually a series of clinics, but I think we ultimately ended up with three or four of them, uh, called Body Total Center. And was this a cash pay, like 
this is so early on, it's wild. Like, was this was this like a cash pay setup? Like, there was nothing like this. No, we were, I think we were one of the first, uh, in fact, when I talked to Richard Hochschild about this, because he was trying to sell his equipment to, you know, to clinicians, and I think there were a number of people who had this in their office, but no one had actually put this together into a system. My whole thing was taking what we learned from the diet program, the, the healthy diet program, and couple it together with this biometric tool, which was early stage, and you know, when you look back now, it's pretty rudimentary, but uh, then to connect that together into an integrated program that we could scale. And I think that we were on the right direction, quite honestly. It was starting to scale, but what happened was, which is not uncommon when you start ideas, several of the people that were the fundamental group, my team, for various reasons, ended up moving on which then became kind of a talent deficient situation because we had we had a pretty good all-star team and one went back to went back to Australia one had a health problem but one wanted to really change their direction so we, we started to actually lose talent which then I think was a, a very serious impediment in growing growing the model up because in the end, I was not the business guy. In the end, I was the idea guy. And once you start losing the business people who were really executing and implementing this, the uh, mechanics of the system, I, I wasn't willing to spend all my time being a business person. So, well, it wouldn't have been the right place for you anyway. Have you uh, have you read uh, Rocket Fuel? Yes, yes, yeah. So you know, visionary entrepreneurs do not put them into the biz ops place. It's like you know, and I've uh, Dan Sullivan, who's spoken at Mindshare a number of times, who's coached more entrepreneurs than anybody. I was in his program for years, and he said, you know, there are three people. There's the make it up, make it real, make it reoccur. Mm -hmm. You're a make it up person. You put a make it up person into making it real or reoccur, and it's just it's an awful situation, and it would be a waste of your talent. Yeah, so that that took Body Total Center. Then ultimately, uh, about this time, we started to develop the functional medicine model. By that time, I had been at the Pauling Institute for a couple of years, got infected by Dr. Pauling's wisdom with where I wanted to go professionally. We then pulled together those, what I look back now as kind of seminal meetings that my wife had hosted for the starting of the functional medicine movement, which was 1990, 89 and 90. And then that led me into recognizing that there was an opportunity to take a technology that we developed and form a new business around it, which was called BoneScan, that was using a, a non-invasive technology for e examining early stage osteolysis and bone loss, particularly in chiropractic osteopathic offices. So that became an, a new kind of technology. And we developed through that, thanks to some people that I was able to hire, uh, technology using now better stage computing technology to actually develop algorithms based upon this in-office procedure to uh, assess early stage bone loss and early stage bone reformation. So we were actually able to measure osteolysis and osteogenesis and put people onto programs and actually see what we were doing and rebuilding their bones. So that company became known as BoneScan, and we had several thousand customers of that company, which then gave rise to my partner and I 
saying, well, you know, with this technology, we should be able to start pulling together data from dietary surveys and biochemical analysis, blood analysis, and uh, trace mineral analysis, and put together a comprehensive computerized survey that would ultimately uh, provide the practitioner tools that they could then use to individualize and personalize treatment programs for individuals. And that became a company called Medical Computers International that we started in, in 1991. So you can imagine, again, that was very early stage technology in which we actually computerized the whole of the USDA handbook number eight food table data. We, we, we computerized all the standard blood chemical analysis, and then we tie that together with nutrition and lifestyle information based upon questionnaires. So that then also developed about 10,000 customers in the early 90s that were customers of Medical Computers International. So you can kind of get the drift of how one thing segues into another. It's an important thing in any entrepreneurial journey is that there's a lot of research and development. Yep. Each company was research and development building on the next one. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So whether the company was successful or not, it was critical to get you to the next step of the journey and to prove a model, right? Because I look at it first and go, okay, well, you were first you proved a model on just the healthy diet on TV. Like that was a big thing. And then moved it into using some kind of technology with healthy aging and showed that you could do that in a cash pay type of situation. You know, you kept proving the model and then going to something that was bigger. So what happened after this one? After this one, I had made the decision that I needed a cash cow to continue to develop ideas. What I had recognized at that point is that I had done consulting for many, many companies, both laboratory and product companies over the years, and a number of my contributions to those companies led them into making millions of dollars. So I said to myself- For them. Yes, for them. I said to myself, maybe it's time that I just capture a couple of those ideas rather than give them away and see if I can convert them into cash cows for our company so that we would have our development money and I wouldn't always be on bended knees trying to find another consulting contract. So that then led us into the medical food business because I had been to a, a number of meetings. I was actually one of the founding members of the Council for Responsible Nutrition way back when, and at one of their early meetings was going through the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and and learning about it. And I, I learned about Section 403J, which is um, Foods for Special Dietary Purposes, which is the groundwork from which ultimately medical foods were developed. And I said, you know, no one's exploiting that section of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Maybe I should be the person to develop medical foods, given that I'm working with practitioners, and this would allow us to make claims, which you couldn't make. This was pre-Dishaya, which you couldn't make for dietary supplements. So we started then investing in research around medical foods, which led me into the formation of HealthCom and the first medical foods, well, Ultra Clear and Ultra Clear, blah, 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 that whole mm -hmm. portfolio of products. We did research in that, and I set up a research center then and got FDA approval as a clinical center for doing human research. And then that led up ultimately into us merging together with Metagenics to, to become the largest practitioner-based dietary company. So Metagenics was going on itself, and you were going on, and then you guys merged. 
Yeah, I had actually been a consultant to Metagenics from the beginning with products in, in that company. And so ultimately, as, as our medical foods grew up, it became obvious that we could have an economy of scale by putting the two companies together, uh, which occurred in 2000. How did IFM come to be? I, IFM was was Susan Bland's uh, idea when I, by that uh, early, by the late 80s, I'd done travel all over the world and met all these interesting people. And so she said, you know, you always are waxing philosophically about the healthcare system. Why don't we uh, put a meeting together, uh, host it? She um, put it in Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island, and you invite, you know, people that you really consider the top opinion leaders across different fields and Let's bring them in and just have a whiteboard discussion about what healthcare should look like if you took licensure and reimbursement out of it, just talked about what it would be. And that was a meeting first held in 1989, but it was so successful that people said, let's do it again. So we did it again in 1990. And 1990 was when I came up with the concept saying, you know, I think what we've been talking about is function. Let's let's call this functional medicine and see if that sticks. And there was a there was a pretty big pushback uh, because people said, Jeff, you know, that term is considered kind of pejoratively in medicine. It either means uh, geriatric uh, medicine with people that are being rehabilitated from functional injuries, or it means psychosomatic medicine. It's all in your mind. Functional has a negative connotation. But I had been reading the the literature, seeing that recently, this was in the late eighties, uh, the term functional radiology, functional cardiology, functional endocrinology were starting to be used that we're recontextualizing the term. So I said, you know, maybe we should we should pick up the term to where it's going, skate to where the fuck is going rather than what where it is, because that to me is the best way of describing the precedence to later stage downstream disease is how a person is functioning. So we then on that second year agreed, okay, let's give it a whirl. We'll throw it up on the blackboard and see if it sticks. And so that was the start of the Institute for Functional Medicine in, in 1991. Wow. When did the other, because I, I remember back when I started in all this, there was like, there was functional medicine, there was alternative medicine, there was integrative medicine, there was holistic, it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was kind of like a battle between everybody. Did all of those other companies start around the same time? Well, Andrew Weil was um, a you know, a contemporary of mine in age, and we actually first met at a joint meeting that we both presented at at the University of Arizona that was uh, hosted as us both being early adopters in parts of the teaching faculty for the American Holistic Medical Association. So Norm Sheely, who was one of the principals to start uh, AHMA, had both Andrew Weil and myself as faculty, I was doing nutrition faculty in the early days of AHMA. And they did this meeting at the University of Arizona, which I think Andy then, you know, with his professorship there at the medical school, then saw the opportunity to really uh, get the medical school involved with this kind of new combination of different historical, cultural uh, approaches to healthcare, which then he was the one that I think uh, labeled it as integrative. Uh, so you now had holistic being converted a little into integrative, and then that got further. You know, when when it was studied for adoption, it, it was then called unconventional. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I always hated alternative too. To me, that was like ridiculous, like a terrible name. Alternative, actually, um, you probably know the story that. 
the way that the INCAN, the National Center for Alternative Complementary Alternative Medicine, was was founded was on the experience that the senator from Illinois had with regard to his allergies that had been horrible for him every spring, and he had been told by a one of the practitioners in quote alternative medicine he should be taking bee pollen, which he took, and it uh, corrected his allergies and. He then asked NIH, what do we know about bee pollen? And they said, you got to be kidding me. You, you know, we don't study bee <laughs> pollen. So then he made the decision. Maybe there was lots of these therapies that were out there that needed studying because maybe they really worked. That alternative concept was born out of that experience. And then it was married together with complementary, which was a concept that actually was brought over from Europe in a, in a meeting that I attended uh, in England, in London, actually, with then Prince Charles, uh, now King Charles who was using the term complementary was in Britain, and I started a, a, a magazine called Complementary Medicine Magazine that really then started putting that term together so it became alternative and complementary medicine, and then you had any while with integrated medicine, and then later functional medicine. I love that you took a stand for functional medicine because I think just the verbiage of alternative or integrative, whereas functional was a different way of doing this, of approaching it. This just felt like, well, it's not its not what we're typically doing over here. It's an alternate. I was like, I, that messaging, just don't love that messaging. You're raising a really important point, JJ, I think, in the evolution of ideas. There has been, uh, I guess, perceived a little bit of a schism between Andrew Weil and me. I think his view, as it's been reported to me uh, about functional medicine, is it's too mechanistic, and it's too much involved with the gobbledygook of the science of cell biology and all that stuff. And it loses the essence of the humanity that's present in traditional healing cultures, uh, be it you know Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine or Amazonian medicine or whatever, that those carry a observational history of experience that is far more deep and broader than any mechanistic understanding that's come more by recent science. And so I think that the construct is that mechanisms take us away from the essence of the humanism of these integrative medical concepts. I actually obviously don't believe that's true. Uh, I think that there is very high power in cultural history of these traditional healing methods. I would never ever um, criticize that. But in order to make them codified into our system, they need to have some, I call it an operating system, where they can be formalized. And what functional medicine tries to do is to provide a operating system based upon the principles of systems biology that makes all of these other historically valuable approaches to healing able to be codified and understood at a level of who needs what, under what conditions, and how. I was validated a little bit in that when I was in, um, this a number of years ago now, probably 15 years ago, I was in China on a conducted tour sponsored by the Chinese Academy of Sciences that were taking me around to all these research stations in China. And it ended up in Beijing, and I was very privileged to uh, end up at the Beijing University Medical Center and, and Hospital, which is uh, arguably considered the top academic and clinical center in, in China, in medical center. 
the uh, chief of staff there, who is, I think, arguably one of the, if not the top medical person in China, invited me to give a lecture to their senior staff on functional medicine, which just blew me away. Now, this is, you know, quite a few years ago. And obviously, it was translated. <laughs> My Mandarin is not that good. <laughs> so after the, the three hours of lecture, translated lecture, the uh, chief of staff, uh, head of the hospital, and I were having this uh, gift exchange and celebrating one another. And uh, I had given him his gift and said a few words, and the translator that was with me translated, and he you know, nodded his head in appreciation. Then he gave me a gift, and he started speaking, but it went on and on and on in Mandarin. It went on and on. You know, I was standing, I'm thinking, I wonder exactly what he's saying. And finally, I turned to my translator and I said, uh, you know, I'm feeling a little embarrassed because I don't know exactly what he's saying, but it's obviously important because he's going on quite long. And he said, well, I'll just summarize quickly by saying, he's saying basically that you're the first person from America who's ever heard that seems to understand traditional Chinese medicine. Well, the reason for it was I was speaking about the method of systems biology, which is the Western way of talking about the systems that developed out of Chinese medicine through observation. They're systems-based. I think that's what functional medicine does, is provides a tool that allows all these different disciplines to be codified with an operating system. And this is such a key thing because I've kind of grown up in this industry and what I've watched is competition hurting growth, where, you know, I, I live by the whole mantra of a rising tide lifts all boats, let's collaborate. And you see the different organizations sometimes battling. And I'm like, just let's all just share ideas and figure out how to push. Everyone has the same end goal. They want to, you know, change the health of humanity. So why don't we all just work together? And everyone's more alike than they are different. And when I heard all this, I went, no, you're just taking the art side of it and helping get the scientific foundation so that it can be easy to apply, mm -hmm. seems like to me. So where do you see, because you said something great, did the great hockey reference to skate where the puck is going. Where do you think the puck is going right now? Well, I think it's starting to develop form and function because the generative AI, coupled with genomics, metabolomics, or let's call it the omics revolution, coupled with wearable devices, coupled with cloud computing, is setting a very clear vision of where the future lies. And what all of this is doing, I believe, is, is actually making real what Andrew Weil was speaking about many years ago when he started the concept of integrative medicine. He was all, uh, and still is as far as I, I can tell, a very strong advocate for people owning their own health and not depending upon interventional medicine to rescue them from health issues. And that has to do with participation, and participation is built upon both motivation and understanding. And the problem with the human body and with medicine is its lexicon and terminology is very off-putting and very complex and very confusing, and most people don't want to spend their whole life learning vocabulary of medicine and anatomy and physiology. And so, in order to make this more user-friendly, we have to find ways of simplifying, and that's what this whole new revolution is doing. It's making accessible through generative AI, cloud computing, biometrics, and 
the nature of systems thinking, it's making accessible that information to individuals readily available 24-7 to their smart device in ways that will be personalized to their culture, language, background, interest, uh, depth, and problems. And that is a wild card of change that is seismic because it will then, for the first time, allow for the development of a true healthcare system that's de-docked or de-differentiated from the disease care system. And the problem we've had, I think, all along is that health has been owned by the disease care system, and they're mutually exclusive. They have different objectives. They have different tools. They have different participatory behaviors. And when health has tried to be owned by the disease care system, when everything is disease risk reduction, everything is tied back to a disease, you can't get over the hump to get people engaged in health in a way that really improves their function, which is really the ultimate objective that most people want. When they talk about health, they don't talk about disease risk reduction. They really talk about how am I functioning? Can I do what I want to do? And how long can I continue to do it without depreciation of my function? This revolution that we're undergoing right now is the, the starting of what will ultimately lead to a bifurcation between disease and health and will codify health in a way that is equally quantifiable as is disease. And now we have a system that can be properly reimbursed. It'll bring young women and men of brightness into the field. It'll have gainful living. It will expand the, the marketplace. We'll have a new economy that's a health economy. That's all in our future. Amen. I'm going to lean into that one because what a shift that will be. What would you say to someone who is, you know, say in medical school or in school right now in some kind of scientific area or in school in marketing and wanting to go into health and looking at this going, huh, what would I be wise to be studying and looking at and thinking about doing with my time? Well, I think first of all, and, and uh, you, you've done this in your life and career, and I, I think it's a good guidepost for, all, for everyone, and that is get really good at something. So if you're in whatever the discipline you've chosen to study, really become good at it. And while you're doing that, recognizing how it's interconnected to other disciplines that form the body of interest that maybe you want to pursue. So you know, a lot of medical students come to me and they say, I'm sick and tired of my first two years of medical school. I hate it. I'm not learning what I want to do. I don't think this is really going to be helpful for my career objectives. And what I say, become really good at that because it's going to pay dividends. Just keep your mind open. Don't make it your foundational catechism that prevents you from continued learning and pursuing your goals and aspirations. But be really good at that because I can tell you, you're going to come back and, and use that time and time again. And similarly would go with a, a person that's in you know, computer programming or a person that's in finance or a person that's in marketing or sales. If you become really good at that craft or that skill, it will then take you to make the transition to the other things that you want to, to append to your skills to be the full expression of your objectives. It'll make it much easier than saying, oh, I'm, I'm not really pursuing this at the level that I should because I don't really like it. No learn to like it and be good at it because it's going to pave the way to other things. And consider it all R&D because look at all the things that you've done along the way. And if someone was going to draw a path <laughs> to where you are now with PLMI and Big Bold Health and immunorejuvenation, they probably wouldn't, they had to backtrack, they probably wouldn't draw that. 
So, but all of those things were necessary steps. And I think people forget that. You know, they just look at, they look at you and go, oh yeah, Jeff, IFM, Jeff, PLMI. And they don't look at all the things that, that led to that along the way that had to happen for you to be able to understand what you need to do and, and the failures you need to go through and the teams that you need to understand how to build and understanding and recognizing talent. As you said, at one point, all the talent left and that's the biggest challenge in a business to me most of the time is the talent. <laughs> you know, you've said so many times by both your position as a, as a leader, but also by your organizational direction of how you brought people into this field and given them confidence to to move forward in their pursuit of of their desires and, and objectives. But I think one of the things that I've, I've really admired, uh, one of the many things actually that I've admired about you is that you have demonstrated it's not a single path to enlightenment, that uh, there are many, many different, if we go back to the the hockey analogy, there are many angles that could, shots on goal can can score a puck in the net. And so what, what a person needs to recognize is that uh, this is not a linear path at all. It's It's a jagged path, but there should be a through line. And I think if the person establishes what their joie de vie, uh, uh, what, the, what their joy of life is, and that should be their through line, and they should fight tena uh, tenaciously to maintain that through line and not allow it to be compromised or diluted, because the you might move around that through line with regard to specific activities in your, your evolution and learnings, but if the through line stays the same, when you look back, and, and in my case now looking back over nearly 50 years, I guess, there is a... Uh, continuity with that through line that was that was maintained throughout all the wanderings from going as a tenured faculty, well, first of all, trying to get to become a tenured faculty member during the Vietnam War, which of that in itself was a interesting part of the cultural evolution of my life, uh, ultimately to today with with Big Bold Health and Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute and the, and the IFM. All of those are tied to a through line, and I think that's what, what a person needs to fight for tenaciously. I love that. That is fantastic. I am so excited to have you at the Mindshare Leadership Summit this year. And, you know, we, of course, have a costume party, which I expect full participation. I remember last time you showed up in your hockey outfit. So I will be, I will be there. Actually, I showed up in my Supersonics outfit for my dearly beloved Seattle Supersonics. Oh, oh okay. They're now, unfortunately, <laughs> the team. In a in Oklahoma, so well, mm. I, I I I will I will have to have a, a more appropriate costume this time. Well, the theme of the overall event is all the world's your stage because there's no business like your business. And then we are having a Shark Tank style competition on Thursday night with real sharks, but we're calling them ringmasters because we cannot call it Shark Tank. So because of that and the ability to get for someone to grab the brass ring because we have real investors coming. Oh, how fun. Um, how fun. Yes. Yes. We tested out in the mastermind. It went so well. I'm like, we're going to do this. That's a yeah. great idea. Real investors. We have Sam Horn teaching people how to pitch. We have Tom Arts going through their business plan. So it's going to be quite, quite a thing. And then uh, our costume party, of course, had to be circus theme because of that. So I'll leave it at that. It takes my imagination and creativity. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you got some time. You got some time. And then uh, Saturday night, we'll be giving you the big Pinnacle Award. And we'll have last year, we had this amazing auction that was so fun to raise money for 
Dr. Joe Dispenza's foundation. So we're doing that again for you. So that that's all going down. I'm super excited about having you there. I love this journey. We'll be talking more about it at the summit because it's so important for people to understand that, as you said, the road to success is a jagged road and the downs are like you, you described your downs as the places where you really learned yeah. what you were able to do to go to the next level. And it's they are the necessary pieces of it that people want to sidestep. And I don't know anyone who's become super successful who's sidestepped those. So thank you for sharing them all with us today. I appreciate you. Well, thank you. What a, what a treat to, to have this uh, kind of transparent, open discussion about evolution of life. It's all our journey. It's the most precious thing we have. Yes, it is. And we'll have to do another one at some point about how you managed to marry such an amazing woman and all of the things that she's done along the way and what it's like working with your wife. Because just the little bit you said, I was like, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. She's been a very, very important figure. She's something. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I agree. All right. Yeah. And one more thing I told this to our buddy, David Perlmutter, I go, you know, I judge people by their wives. <laughs> well, he's, so, he's, got a, he's got a star. Uh, uh, he's, like, he's so you, you've gone up a hundred X. I loved you. And now I'm like, you know, love, 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 love you. So <laughs> it's the same with Susan. All right. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you. Thank you. Likewise. Looking forward to the next chapter in our journey. Here at the Mindshare Collaborative, we are committed to helping you increase your vision, income, and impact. One of the first things we'd love to support you on is adding a high-profit leveraged income stream so that you can enjoy more time and money freedom. And to help you get started, I've created the Health Professionals Playbook for building multiple streams of income that identifies five proven strategies for creating a sustainable income beyond your primary practice to create time and money freedom. To get your free copy as my gift to you, go to ms365.io forward slash MSI. That's ms365.io forward slash MSI.